Welcome, everyone, to the Defenders podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. There it is again. The Defenders podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 107, Fish in the Jailhouse, is sponsored by Electra Elevators. Need to get the Iron Fist 30 floors below Manhattan quick? Express elevator to hell going down. <laughs> well done, Pete. And a reminder to one and all of a couple of uh, other irons, not fists, but other irons that we have in the fire. Number one, the next podcast that we do for episode 108, we will be picking a winner who has left us an iTunes review on either the Pop Culture Podcast feed or the Defenders Podcast by Fantastic Geek feed. Will you be a winner? Gotta leave an iTunes review and uh, get that in because uh, sometimes it takes iTunes a uh, you know a day or two to post the review. So get that in there. Uh, any any exciting words you want to add to that, Pete? Well, I mean, irons. <laughs> let's let's talk about uh, Star Trek Discovery. Let's talk about Inhumans. Um, we're we're getting closer and closer to New York Comic Con, which is always a big goings on in the Fantastic Geek parts. So uh, it's a great time to be a geek, and it's a busy time to be a fantastic one. <laughs> Yeah, can't wait to live tweet and podcast that first episode of Star Trek Discovery. Can't wait to see a bunch of you all at New York Comic Con. We always run into some podcast pals, and that's always great fun. And uh, room for even more S.H.I.E.L.D. fans now that uh, now the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is going to be at the theater at Madison Square Garden instead of uh, in the Javits proper. So a rockin' time shaping up, certainly. Let's crack open the case files to see what our defenders had on the docket in this episode. Matt, we begin some time ago. Indeed, Pete, that near patented tradition for Marvel TV, not getting hung up on chronology just some time ago. Electra is in her sweet, sweet car. She's there to meet Stick, who's rocking some awesome shades. Uh, and Electra says that she has tried to pull Matt Murdock into the chase, but she has failed. Stick says, in fact, she has, she's the one that has been changed. She's been weakened by Matt all because you fell in love. <laughs> Thank goodness we get to see uh, Scott Glenn as this character at least one more time. Um, and to have him and it not be a Matt scene with Electra here. And he definitely treats each one of them differently. Um I think it makes it all the more special as an epilogue to the character, if that's indeed what it is. Oh, it's a it's a moving paternal scene on his part. And Pete, for as much as I have spoken in previous episodes about not being not being uh, smitten with Electra before her death, um, still this is a reminder of the good that was in Electra. Absolutely, and that. She's sensing that Matt is different, something Stick already knows. Uh, he's obviously used her in an attempt to manipulate him into helping to fight this war. And what do you know? They wound up on opposite sides of it. With that, we dissolve to 
what I dare say is the failure of the defenders. We have Stick bloodied and dead. We have Luke Cage knocked out. Jessica Jones knocked out. Matt Murdock knocked out, bathed in uh, ever closer police lights. With that, we get the title card. This episode directed by Felix Enriquez Alcala. Pete, an eclectic TV record for Mr. Alcala. He's done Madam Secretary, Criminal Minds, The Good Wife, whole bunch of TV. And uh, now is as good a time as any to note that uh, in that scene with the Defenders knocked out and in future scenes, this episode has kind of a rough handheld quality that certainly is interesting to watch. We pick up, Matt, with Jessica Jones picking her head up, coming to in the Harlem precinct here uh, in that holding room yet again with Misty Knight. Yes, and Jessica immediately... Uh, says that she remembers nothing, uh, or at least that's what she's saying to to the police. She tugs those handcuffs, doesn't break them. Probably the, the better choice there. Um, Jessica Jones does admit that she did not kill the two people there, and uh, Misty reminds her, and indeed the audience, that she has, of course, killed before, uh, which I think is a key little moment to have us understand some of the hostility that Misty uh, places towards my favorite character in Marvel Netflix. But Pete, wh- where where's Luke Cage? Where's Matt Murdock? They're down the hall. And I think what Misty picks up on here that never goes said in the episode is that she can see that Jessica clearly cares for these other people. So she can't be bad. And would it have been effective and Maybe listeners know, maybe they don't remember. One of the people that Jessica Jones killed was Luke's wife. Um, So that certainly could have been brought up by somebody, two people here, both familiar with Luke Cage. Misty obviously coming in later to his sphere of influence. But that it goes unsaid, I think, is is a nice acknowledgement of the moment, yet not distracting from the fact that this is not that story. Well, Jessica also acknowledges uh, that there is a shadow organization that exists out there. She does not name it in this scene and attributes both deaths uh, to a single person. That's the same single person who killed John Raymond. So a little back and forth between these two powerful gals. With that, we cut to Matt Murdock, who is uh, woken up by a phone call, albeit not a phone call for him. Uh, He is sleeping off his hit in a private office in the police station. And Foggy is going to arrive in a moment and and share some information. I appreciate here, though, that Matt Murdock, who is less blind than zero sight by by virtue of his uh, special abilities, that doesn't mean that he, you know, can instantly uh, sample the, the, the offerings of a room uh, and and know where he is. And I like that there's this moment, most of the time we see him in court. You know, he knows the layout of the courtroom and he mm-hmm. has he has his uh, his his stick to help uh, help along or his home or even just the streets. You know, it's a grid in New York. Here it's this, comp- he has no idea how, how he's gotten there, which would be disorienting for, for any of us, but then he has no kind of visual context to place where he's at. Yeah, I like the way... He's cast in this scene out of his element. Yes, he's got these super senses, but at the same time, 
you know, he's wearing an NYPD shirt and he's unsure of where he is. And that's clearly a factor of the blow that he took. What I don't like in this scene, Matt, is yet again, it's character is someplace and Foggy comes in to say things um, as a lawyer. How many times in the defenders have we seen this? Let's let's recount. Uh, it happened to Luke Cage in Seagate prison. Um, it's happened to um, Karen Page. It's happened to uh, Matt on multiple occasions. I just feel like, can we get a different type of foggy scene other than I'm going to come in and do lawyer things and here they're kind of lawyer and friend things. I think that this is a very entertaining episode. This is an episode that, uh, that does not show its sins or its stitching very easily. But when you start to dig down a little bit, particularly it being the penultimate episode of the miniseries, so it has to do certain propulsion to get the characters to a certain point for the big finale. Uh, you're absolutely right. This is a scene, and there, there's a number of scenes which in and of themselves are fine, are entertaining. It's characters that we love. The fact that there's so many familiar faces in this is, is a rare treat. And the, part of this unique conceit of four series feeding into this miniseries, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, what's this scene about? Foggy arrives to share the fact that the police have lots of questions. And then Foggy is trying to calm things down, whereas man, Matt wants to go find the real, the real, he wants to find Danny Rand, the billionaire. So it's just kind of information swapping in the scene. Again, great to see Eldon Henson, great to see him with Charlie Cox, but the purpose of this scene is just info dump. Yeah, I'd much prefer you give him a little bit more to do rather than harried, oh, what's what's happening now? I don't understand what the Iron Fist is, et cetera, et cetera. And by the time Misty comes in and Misty uh, chews the hell out of this episode and it's great um, for an episode that for me is a bridge from uh, one to the finale. Um, but to be confronted with Matt Murdock, you know, undaredevilly off his game, but on his lawyer game as far as protecting his client's attorney client privilege um, is, is smart writing and it's great to see these two characters go head to head. I'll say this for the episode and indeed for a number of these scenes that involve transfer of information or, or propulsion towards larger issues. This is a 45 minute episode that has what 30 seconds of, you know, boom, Netflix, flippity, 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 Marvel, uh, has 60 seconds at least at the end of credits. It's got a 60-second um, title sequence. This is an episode that is quite close to the 42 or 43-minute um, length that you might have for a broadcast hour. I can't imagine that they wrote it to be 43 to 45 pages long. Um, maybe some of these talky-talk-talk scenes were longer, and in the editing process they said, cut it down, cut it down, cut it down. That's part of what the Netflix model allows you is you don't have to hit an exact time amount. So again, some of these scenes where we don't see the stitching, maybe that's because a really smart editor came along and said, let's just make this baby cook. It's the second to last episode. We're expecting big things in the last episode. Let's make this episode move. And uh, indeed it does, Pete. Whereas you had the episode where we had all of our supporting characters show up at the uh the precinct here 
there's there's none of that charm though. Um, the, these are pained check-ins as Claire is feeling the pulse of Luke and a concerned Colleen is looking on. Indeed, as uh, they both seem to be in this scene defined kind of largely by mea culpa, the things we do for men. Um, that is not to say I don't buy into the Claire-Luke connection. That's not to say I don't buy into the Colleen-Danny connection and her concern for Danny, who is the absent one. I mean, a knocked-out Luke Cage is better than Danny Rand. Missing? Tortured? Dead? Who knows? So I buy the emotion, but somebody wrote the emotion for these women to say and to emote. Um, and we get recap as to what happened to Luke. Um Again, it's kind of an insubstantial scene. Although, yeah. to be fair, Colleen, she does start to get a speech about how, how Claire is the foundation, or pardon me, how Colleen is the foundation, how Claire is always one to get involved and act on her convictions, and Pete, things are starting to pick up, and oh, is that Luke Cage waking up? <laughs> yeah, and I have to, again, give you credit, because you're the one been saying it. Um, with each passing episode, the Defenders redeems iron fist um that being said the better colleen wing is in iron fist uh, similar to foggy here i feel like they've been very one note and again you're servicing so many masters as far as characters but it's been oh i i failed i let myself down i let other people down i've i've you know, had my sword taken away. I feel that she's so very one note when she showed us a kaleidoscope in Iron Fist. Lady, you're a small business owner. You're moonlighting as a special off the book secret agent trying to fight an unseen organization. Girl power, you're doing all right. You walk around this precinct after, uh, before and after a security breach unchecked and steal explosives. Well, we'll get to that when we get to that because uh, I have questions. But Pete, yes. <laughs> let's go back to Midland Circle. Alexandra's unseen body uh, is taken out on a sheet. Still Wait, literally... that's not Sigourney Weaver in there. I, I think Sigourney Weaver at the end of 106 got, and that's a wrap for Sigourney Weaver. Applause, applause. And they pop some champagne and, uh, and uh, maybe all went out to dinner that night. And, uh, and then they put a bunch of caro syrup in that sheet and dragged it off. <laughs> Pete, I don't know why I loved the image of that blood pouring out. I think just because it was so visceral. Yeah. And, and if indeed, just because of the dignity of the actress, uh, they weren't going to show you awesome beheading move, holding up by hair, spinal column hanging out of neck. Like if it was going to be just the quick slice uh, the trickling uh, uh, out through the sheet, through the cloth there, really sells it. That, that's um, just I, it. That's just I it. I think sometimes when they, they simply drag it out, you're like, all right, how many times have I seen this? But you haven't really seen that type of presentation. And for Electra to be told, this is not how they do business, her last line having been, uh, you know, any questions – that you work for me now. Um, she is definitive. This is how they are going to do it. And there's some disagreement 
between the three remaining fingers left on the hand. Yeah, Bakuto and uh, Murakami, they're ready to push back against Electra, at least verbally. And Gao, once again, we see her off to the side, smiling, thinking, turning her head, then breaking it down, explaining that Alexandra fostered relationships with power brokers, corporations, and politicians. Pete, I can't imagine who in our world Alexandra would have buddied up to. (laughs) It's just this fiction. Um, And all of this let the hand stay hidden. Um, And Electra says at this point she isn't worried about the hand. She is focused on the substance and getting more, which made me sit up and say, oh, well, that's, that's not what I expected. Well, their first coup without the substance and obviously the mortality of this, two of them now dead um, and the remaining ones certainly vulnerable. What this scene, Matt, showed off to me in addition to the very stark and stern performances, it's shot from below and you see a fair amount of rust on the girders above so there's reference to them being underground and this is not the high-tech midland circle looking place despite the rest of the setting so that really stood out to me i had not noticed the camera angle in this scene although later on it appears that the director was choosing to shoot from let's say below the shoulders um I, I, I thought perhaps in later scenes it was to, to highlight the fact that everyone is a hero. We look up to everyone. But, Peter, if we're looking up to the bad guys, too, that just that blows my mind. I don't know what to think anymore. <laughs> well, Alexandra says they're, they're living underground. They're hiding. And even the way that the camera is shot almost from, like, hip height looking up at their uh, bust level, um, you know, really highlights that. Um, Bakudo you know, before has, has looked aged. And I think the way that they've shot him has made him look like an older man than he really is. And here he looks youthful yet they're all under the gun and it's no more apparent by, you know, the three quarter mark of this episode when they throw down. Side note, I really, really appreciate the, um, the, there's something that uh, actor Ramon Rodriguez does with uh, with the voice of Bakudo that I really, really enjoy. I don't know if it's because um, it's just a combination, perhaps, of his uh, his accent. I don't know if it's because he's worked on stage. I mean, being a New York-based actor, I, I assume he's done some stage work. But there's kind of this... Much as with uh, with um, Sawande, how there was a, a lived-in nature to him. He kind mm-hmm. of felt older than he was. There's just something about Bakuto's voice that comes across as, um, I don't know, he just, just the way he pronounces things, it, he comes across as more mature than he is, and no disrespect to the actor. World-weary, I think. Yeah, yeah. And there's just kind of, there's a certain enunciation there where it's just, it's just fantastic. Again, you find an actor, I will admit, I mean, I've seen some of the stuff that, that uh, Ramon Rodriguez has been in before. I, I couldn't have picked him out of a lineup before uh, before Iron Fist. Um, but he's like the perfect guy. The, he's bringing this, he's elevating the character beyond the writing. 
I was not familiar with him before Iron Fist, but he's certainly uh, risen to the challenge. No more worse for wear, however, are the three free members of the Defenders, not under the yoke of the hand, but still in an NYPD precinct in Harlem as they get summoned to a room to speak with uh, not only Misty Knight, but also Captain Stryber. Indeed, and uh, Captain Stryber is taking Misty's recommendation to treat these three as witnesses, not as suspects. And uh, Matt, the vaunted lawyer, here throws some lawyerly concerns. My clients are emotionally distressed. They should really go home. Uh, But the captain does not want to hear it. He's ready to jail them. And uh, I give Luke credit here for reading the situation, which is to say Matt is not a great lawyer in this episode. Uh, Luke is the one who kind of figures out it's time to start offering up information here. He says that uh, the, the bad guys are called the Hand. They're dangerous. They have Danny Rand. And Luke says that we, as in the Defenders, can hand this. And uh, Pete, Captain Stryber says there is no we. There are no vigilantes in New York City, not even in Queens. <laughs> it's funny that we both had the same thought as this was going on. And obviously um, this appears uh, post-Spider-Man Homecoming, but uh, was, was filmed uh, before the nature of TV and uh and film um, and everything before it came out, I should say before Spider-Man came out. But uh, yeah, funny that that comes out that way and daredevil and Spider-Man having such a close association from the comics. Well, just to peel back from the fiction for a moment, I, I recall that the Sony deal uh, specifically prohibits any kind of usage of Spider-Man in live action TV. So probably even a cutesy, you know, yeah. We got guys who crawl on walls. Probably even that would have Sony a little upset. So I just like kind of the la, 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 la. There are no vigilantes. Iron Man, nope, not a vigilante. He's moving <laughs> upstate. Uh, yep. the, the, the guy in Queens, I don't know. He helped something with a bike or something. And then that's just about it for that. And no vigilantes. In fact, Pete, he's ready to call District Attorney Tower. That's a shout out from, uh, from definitely Luke Cage. And didn't DA Tower... Didn't he show up in Daredevil as well? He did. He was in uh, in uh, Daredevil season two, um, and I read that two ways. Not only DA Tower, you know, the person, but DA Tower, the building. Like I'm, I'm gonna get all these lawyers on you, uh, on the three of you, um, and wherever the hell Danny Rand might be as well. You know, I love this uh, Striber. You know, he almost seems like he should be chewing a, a cigar as he's doing this. And then uh, Matt even uh, gives him the slightest bit of lip and he's he's ready to do it. And Misty has to be the voice of uh, reason and kind of pull him back on it. Pete, here is evidence as to how well performed that whole scene is, because what we just described is every police captain who's ready to either throw your butt in jail take your gun and your badge or just throw you off the case. Like it's the stereotypical, the bullheaded police captain and the detectives like, listen, gap got to slow down here. These guys, they could be witnesses, not suspects, but it just works. It works with all these actors. I dare say the gentleman playing captain Stryber, he's the one that has to make it work the most. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a rare opportunity 
uh, particularly in a TV event like this. Uh, but as they leave, Claire sees them uh, exit. Uh, the next thing that transpires, Matt, we've already drawn attention to the uh, the issue of Colleen Wing walking around unchecked. This after having been handed back a katana in a police precinct. Okay, it's an heirloom. We'll uh, we'll we'll forgive that seeming sin. But here is Karen Page, you know. The journalist who, hey, let me just talk to one of the three guys you have in custody right now uh, who I know, but who also is a lawyer and connected to this case. This would never, ever be allowed to happen. Pete, not even if she's there for her protective custody along with the other group of people for protective custody. I mean, I know it's all taking place in the one the one police building, but. It is the one police building where they were all called to and the one police building where Misty Knight, hot on the case, brought these three people back to. Let me break it down for you. Once a journalist, always a journalist, you're talking to a journalist. The immediate assumption needs to be it is on the record until you uh, put some ground rules down that it isn't. And not to say that Karen is a disingenuous or deceitful person. Although we have seen her commit a murder that has never gone confessed, <laughs> uh, albeit of a bad person, but still, um, this would not be allowed to happen. Regardless, Pete, they have their little, uh, their, their little, con- I shouldn't even denigrate it. They have their conversation, which does have a good, uh, product from it she's shocked that matt has gotten pulled into this life again how could he do this to his life and matt's response is perfect and to me it kind of was like in an episode where there's a whole bunch of story action going on here was a heck of a uh, character moment he says karen this is my life and shot again from beneath a particularly comic looking i mean this comes almost off a panel uh, the the glasses, the the left um, lens scratched up a, an X there asymmetrically oh, off to, to the side. Can, can, can we just say a letter which which has uh, <laughs> his, oh man, uh, I, I could he feel is the, this. Maybe it's a cross. There you go. <laughs> cross men. Twentieth Century people? Fox does, doesn't own doesn't own uh, Christianity yet, does it? Chris, Christianity people. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Pete, elsewhere in the building, Colleen is getting a coffee and she sees one of those patented misty night walls of pinned up pictures in front of which one can stand and stare and contemplate. Here they contemplate. But not this. if you're a civilian. <laughs> so I... this this is officially labeled the uh, the weakest precinct house in uh fictional nypd because this place is a sieve and yes they are housing a lot of uh individuals right now who are deemed as uh targets but that being said they would be in a place they would not have free reign like this well pete i just want you to know that even as colleen is contemplating danny's situation looking at some of the evidence even as she sees a quick picture of C4, I want you to not worry because naturally in no way, in no how is this precinct uh, going to have uh, C4 in it. There's got to be some sort of NYPD 
bomb, explosives, dangerous evidence vault that is not in Manhattan. And you stick it in like a like a bomb proof truck, proof truck, and you take it to one of the outer boroughs to where there's some you know warehouse where no one can get hurt. It's not like in the middle of Harlem they're going to have a bag of C4 just sitting around. Absolutely. I mean, come on. Think of the number of risks. But uh, the next scene here leads us to Luke and Misty, two characters with a, uh, a history there, particularly back to the pilot episode of, of Luke Cage and, and the hookup there. And what struck me in particular with this episode is the number of, um, you know, couples that uh, are, are in our our cast here you've got you know whether whether they're current or former couples you know here you have luke and misty who had a who had a moment here you have luke and claire who are still together you have colleen and um danny rand who are pretty much together you have uh matt and karen who are figuring it out you have Jessica and Luke. Man, Luke, Luke's been involved with a lot of these ladies. <laughs> Pete, listen, let me let me tell you something. Uh, I only have an eye for the for the fairer sex, but uh, I think I understand why Luke Cage is connected to three of these ladies, and uh, everybody else is kind of lower down on the list. I'll put it like that. Speaking of Luke Cage, Misty pulls him out of the uh, the sidebar room uh, in order to to talk to him, and he reiterates that he is trying to protect everyone. And this is particularly uh, part of the story where we have the camera below shoulder level. I think again, we're meant to be looking up at the bulletproof man, at the blind ninja, indeed at the newspaper reporter and the police detective to see them all as heroes. Pete, you know who we don't look up at is uh, Electra, who actually the camera is slightly above her as uh, she's in the elevator, doubtless at the bottom of Midland Circle. Yeah, and this is clearly the most interesting stuff of the episode. Um, we want to know what's down there beneath Midland Circle. Um <laughs> The elevator ride down there certainly teases that enthusiasm we have to find out what's down there, um, almost painfully so. Um, and for them to be monitored, whether they know it or not, by the three remaining leaders of the hand and the discussion they're having as this is going down, uh, as they're going down to um, the door, to the structure, to whatever it is, the dome that's down there, um, again, ups that tension tenfold. It does. And, uh, of course, as the elevator gets to the bottom, Danny awakes just like that, still strapped to his Silence of the Lambs gurney. Uh, Electra takes him out at the bottom. She turns on the lights. Danny sees see something it's it's amazing and <laughs> we're not going to see it yet cut at the point of highest tension pete back to the police station we go where jessica jones tells matt that if they get charged they want a new lawyer which i yeah that was just a great line those those green and blue lights having mesmerized us and boom cut from it um and i like here how jessica 
uh, is made even to kind of whisper and to be self-conscious, something she almost never is as a character. Listen, I got nothing but respect for law enforcement, but Jessica Jones, she does not trust the popo. Of that, I am certain. Listen, I know law enforcement. I respect her, okay? But these guys here, they they have a higher duty than law enforcement. (laughs) Um, I guess also the story has a a duty to have a quick recap. Uh, explaining that Stick likely knew what the hand was doing with the fist and he was trying to stop it. It's also a recap about how the architect was going to blow the building down to the hole. I could do with a little less recap. Uh, by the way, Pete, knock, knock. Who's there? Uh, it's Foggy. Foggy who? <laughs> Pete, it's Foggy Nelson. Didn't you see this episode? He's at the door there to remind Matt that an investigation into Matt's life means that they will probably find out about Daredevil, meaning that Matt's, nay, both their cases will probably be thrown out, retried, they'll both be disbarred. Is this enough legal talk for you, Pete? Wait, are you telling me that Eldon Henson has yet again done the little run-in-place thing for about 25 seconds, knocked on the door, and had another scene of near-breathless dialogue with Matt Murdock or Karen Page? Uh, About legal things, yes. Yeah. Um, the twist here, and we'll, we'll give credit where credit is due, um, and it's telecast ever so slightly, but in the bag is not clothing, but the Daredevil suit. So what doesn't make as much sense to me is, okay, um, early in the episode, Matt is concerned when he wakes up, when he comes to, that he's not in the suit. Oh, thank God. Uh, however... Later on, um, the the suit is brought to him when it probably didn't need to be for his escape to happen, given that he picks up on the NYPD saying, oh, they think I'm a hostage. Um, Unless somebody knows that he needs a costume change before the <laughs> fight at the end of the episode, which is I, a prelude think, to the fight I, at the I, end of the series. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a way to get the suit in his hands and do that. Um, so, you know, credit given, credit taketh away. Um, credit given back for the uh, nickname of Super Joan Jet for Jessica Jones. <laughs> Certainly a, uh, a, a cute moment there. Um, the story, however, moves elsewhere, which is good because we're about to have a surprise with you know our three heroes here. Uh, the captain, who, by the way, Pete, played by actor Ron Simmons, whose uh, website describes him as actor, producer, philanthropist. So this is a busy guy when he's not, not, not yelling at Misty Knight. Uh, and he says that if all this goes bad or good, it'll all land on misty just like that it appears that luke and jessica and matt have broken out all because there's another hole in the wall yeah um to have that discussion there where he's essentially uh doing some philanthropy for misty knight's career and uh now we've got this massive hole of course our powered people have broken out um love the shot of of misty kind of peering through the the block wall there um to to you know peer through the smoke and seeing what's going on before we're back under midland circle 
there's the shimmering blue and green. There's some kind of tablet-esque wall, door, what have you, and a language that uh, Danny may recognize. Indeed, uh, it is a foreign tongue. Uh, it, it appears to me that it's on a cornered wall and not a perfectly round sphere. I will grant this episode some mystery and... Uh, Perhaps my questions will be answered when I watch the final episode shortly after we're done recording this podcast. But I kind of felt, I feel confused at first, way back when there was the whole music performance for Alexandra. They found a wall, but walls aren't round, but there's a sphere down there. I'm a little confused. Well, whatever. (laughs) Well, it's a dome and it's shaped as a dome. I think that was part of the, the spherical nature. But um, what's great in this scene is Electra um, having taken over for Alexandra here and actively trying to get um, Danny to rebel as well, yet do what she wants him to do. It's interesting to think that we are Pete. What's the what's the timestamp at this point of the episode? We are about 20 five minutes in okay which means that there's 20 or 20 so minutes, minutes left. remaining yep now just to verbally summarize what's left electra keeps annoying danny until he gets angry <laughs> enough to have the, the glowy fist he puts the fist in and then ends up inside it or whatever um meanwhile where are our defenders they're 20 blocks uptown of midland circle they make their way down they fight in you left up, up a subway ride, but, you know, I'll, I'll forgive it. My point being, and this is not a complaint, but my point being that the climax of this episode isn't far away, but we're only halfway through. It's kind of just, an, it, it's interesting how a lot of this stuff, it's not filler, but it's just how it stretches out for the remaining 20 minutes. Uh, regardless, though, we get some uh, some uh, exposition here, Electra reiterating that years ago, someone like Danny and Iron Fist sealed this up, which means that only an Iron Fist can open it up. She adds that uh, behind the walls, the true power of the hand, and uh, Danny reminds her that he was trained by his masters to defeat the hand, and she says you could overthrow his masters just like she did. Yeah, and before that scene is done, you understand, okay, we got about 20 minutes left. Do they save the opening of the of the wall of the door for uh, the final episode, or do they do it here? And you, you kind of start to do the mental calisthenics of what story is left to tell. Back in Harlem, they're putting the pieces together on the search for the three of our escaped defenders here. Misty gets chewed out yet again uh, and a final chance to uh, catch them. That she does. And uh, Captain uh, Stryber is ready to find them. And at this point, the whole place is a mess. This allows Colleen to just, you know, wander into the evidence room, which apparently has no independent lock, uh, (laughs) as one does. Um, although I would, I would be okay if there are some evidence rooms that actually don't have an independent lock. If there is a clear line behind which civilians cannot go, i.e. you can't go into the back area where there are 
police desks and lockers and water coolers and all that. Regardless, I of mean, who- it says property room on the outside. Once she's inside, there is a notice on the door in flag patriotic writing of 9-11 and she's able to find and gain access to these explosives this is a big oversight in terms of storytelling yeah yeah there's kind of no way around it as she looks through big bags she looks through small bags she looks through envelopes and boxes finding first the demolition plans and the C4 itself just kind of sitting there. They must not have much in this precinct at all that she's able to locate these two things in the what minute <laughs> that she's in this this property room. Agree. And, and- but when Luke and Jessica and Matt break out and there's the hole in the wall and we get Misty Knight looking through it, she's looking down into the wind, which suggests that this is a multi-story building. I don't know. Let's call this what this is. This is a soft spot in the story. They need to get explosives that were introduced in the first episode all the way to the last episode. This is how they're doing it. Eh, okay. Uh, Back on the street, Jessica, Matt, and Luke, they're on the sidewalk. They're hiding from the police. They need to get 20 blocks away pronto. They don't have cab money. But Pete, is that the lowly Metro card? Hopefully it has enough, you know, for like three people on there. Cut to Pete, the aforementioned subway scene. Can you tell us about it? It's a tremendous scene. You wish that it hadn't been used so heavily in the promotion of the show to, to save the chuckle for when you saw it. Instead, we already know the punchline. Uh, when she grabs the beers here uh, that the uh, passed out individual um, has on the subway. Now, Pete, there is no bigger Jessica Jones fan than me. But I just want to point out, here she is stealing a beer from a passed out itinerant man. Jessica, I'm starting to wonder if you legit have a drinking problem. I feel just a little conflicted as to whether I should be... (laughs) I should be laughing at her. It's one thing to say, oh, she's super powered. Ha ha ha. She drinks a bottle of gin at night. You know, oh, and that's also with the painful backdrop at the beginning of season one where she's dealing through her, you know, a, a abuse and PTSD and all that. She's stealing a beer from a, from, from a passed out, presumably homeless guy. Matt. And, th- and chugs it. I feel I, I, so we need to have an intervention in between this and season two of Jessica Jones. <laughs> let, let he or she who has not uh, crushed a road soda um, on a subway, uh, you know, cast the first stone. I think I just did, Pete. (laughs) Well, let's just say I can't say anything here. Uh, Is is there nothing else you could say about the subway Except to point out that behind them, uh, there actually, there are two, the, the one woman looking on is shot in front of it as well. There are not one, but two Rand enterprises poster uh, posters, the one most visible with, uh, people holding hands in front of either a, a sunrise or a sunset on the beach with the message. We're here for you. Back we go, Pete, to the chaotic police station where Foggy is walking down the, the hall and four extras dressed as NYPD, they all do this like this. Um, it's like a crisscross thing. Yeah, You're going to go here and I'm going to go here. All right, good. And you I'm going to kind of move you out of the way because you're going to cross in front of me and I'm going to not shove but like move. 
three, um, you know, uh, choreographed takes to get it the way they wanted, but, but it works clearly they are busy, but it also comes across as a ballet in the hallway. (laughs) It's like a street ballet. He meets up with Karen, uh, who, by the way, knocks on the window as he walks by, despite the fact that the door is like three feet away and she's going to stuck her head out. But I get it. She has to, the camera has to see her first. Fine. Foggy admits to her, though, that this, all of this could help uh, get Matt back. Uh, Oh, yeah, because he gave Matt his Daredevil suit. But this could end things once and for all. Pete, like the Defender's arc. We could get Matt back, too, you know, which... For the first time, and it, it's the one thing that's not on the radar moving forward, an idea at this point of a Daredevil season three, only because you've had all these other shows to get through and then to return. I mean, they've, they're have they currently uh, just about um, done with uh, Jessica Jones. They're shooting uh, season two. They're shooting Luke Cage season two. Uh, we've got Punishers, um, Punishers. We've got the Punisher on the way most immediately. Iron Fist has been renewed for season two. So, you know, some direction here about where Matt's story might go next. Back to just lawyer Matt, at least as far as the two most important people in his life. We move on to Misty checking with Claire, uh, where it is reiterated that it's important to do the right thing, no matter the consequences. That is what Luke Cage is about. This might not be convenient, but Luke is the kind of man who gets things done. And Pete, they've been talking for so long. Where's that chick with the sword? You know, the one that now has bombs (laughs) and plans Uh, to blow up a building. She's in the wind. Um, And again, you understand why it needs to do that in terms of story. You just wish the writers might have come up with a way for it to seem a bit more organic rather than, Hey, the whole precinct is on alert. So people are just going into the property rooms, man. I'm reminded of die hard three. It's like Christmas. You can steal city hall. Well, farther downtown, closer to city hall. Indeed. uh, Jessica and Luke walk up to the building she wonders if maybe they should get a drink first. Ken Pete, I think that's a you know a, a misappropriation of priorities. Maybe she has a problem. Uh, Luke reiterates that they're going to get in through the parking garage, and this two shot becomes a three shot as Daredevil appears, tightening his glove. Uh, they head into the building, and Matt senses three people down there. But Pete, not just any three people, three particular people. Yes, three handy people perhaps matt i see what you did there uh i like how the hand kind of reveals their weapons bakudo brandishes a sword murakami his club and gao a smile and a pallet of cinder blocks (laughs) and we've talked about how um particularly the powered women uh on this series uh, both Jessica Jones and Madame Gao have used, uh, you know, the ability to uh, move things. Hers bordering on on telekinesis, um, if not outright. And, you know, Jessica's just on absurd strength. And, um, 
you know, do we do we give this scene a hard time? Because, again, the guys fight the guys and and the girls fight the girls. Uh, Do we give it props because the featured fight is the girls uh, or do we downgrade it because of that and and consider that a a cliche? Um, I'm drawn to the fact that you've got a a woman who is hundreds of years old, who by the nature of the actress, obviously they need to shoot the stunt double from behind the costume and the wig and the cane, but she is moving these cinder blocks and, you know, death punching the air. Um, and it might be the greatest fight in a miniseries. It's had a lot of good fights. Gal might fight Jessica Jones primarily, but at a certain point, it's Gal versus Luke Cage, uh, Colleen, uh, and we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but but Colleen um, uh, briefly sword fights with Bakudo. So I agree it kind of starts out girls versus girls, boys versus boys, but they, they all mix it up, certainly. But Pete, we'll get there in a minute. Let's go back 30 stories down to, to, to the round wall. I don't know if there's Klingonese written on there. <laughs> Danny is pensive. Uh, he says he's about fighting. Uh, maybe he's saying this because they need more scenes here to line up with the climax. I'm not quite sure, but Electra reiterates that they've been both been raised to fight. See, they're similar. She's painting the two of them as parallel. She killed Alexandra. Danny left Kunlun. They both struggled. Electra took her destiny. Shouldn't Danny take her destiny? Uh, he's been not ready to confront things in the past, but he's not going to not confront her. So they fight. There's an adage in uh, all writing, but it it never applies more than to screenwriting. If the story you're telling is the story you're telling, you're in deep stuff. I'll paraphrase there. And this scene and this story is not about fighting. The scene between the two of these characters is about rebellion. And uh, with Electra trying to corrupt Danny and Danny even considering it, whereas he never considered Alexandra's overtures, is the success of the writing and the execution of this scene. Before we completely head back up to the parking garage, and there's a lot of intercutting here, uh, one of the moments we're back down and Electra is spinning around, her coat looking kind of like a cape. Uh, just the way the coat is falling, it's it's a fantastic. Oh, it's great. Bit. And uh, again, for this to be shot the way it is and to execute these particular stunts, and yes, Elodie Young is tremendously skilled as. Uh, a fighter and does so many of her own stunts, but this is not her. And that's by practicality because you don't want your, you know, sub headlining actress to be doing these flips in this long waist trench coat thing that is marvelous to watch in this fight. As we uh, remain back in the parking garage, uh, Gao certainly continues to dominate. Luke throws a pipe to Jessica, though, who then whacks poor gal. I mean, I mean, the awful gal. Um, <laughs> Luke also smashes Murakami nicely. And just as our heroes uh, seem to be getting an arm up, 
Um, we have uh, Colleen arriving. She stops a, a blow from her old master. And you kind of feel the defenders coming together for all the sins of getting Colleen to the parking garage. All of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, these defenders might be more than the four of them. We're kind of building momentum here. All of a sudden there's a burst of gas. Bakudo sparks it with his sword. He sparks one, as the kids say, or something. Um, And that allows our baddies to escape. Luke pinches the gas line. And we we get a pause in the action, Pete. But smolder in the in the hands and in uh, the clothing um, where he's he's pinched off the uh, the flames and uh, between the intercutting of of the two scenes the 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 ballet of of violence happening um, the emotion the music swelling it's a perfect place to uh, you know bring it back it really really is it's an opportunity to just kind of uh, take take measure of where everything is up to. Um, we, we also see where things are up to down in the, uh, in, you know, in the, in the hole. Electra has the upper hand on the fist. See what I did there. Uh, Danny is proud of his loyalty. And I dare say at this point, the audience is ahead of that pure, sweet-minded Danny who doesn't realize that he's being cajoled into getting angry enough for his fist to light up so that Electra can use it. But... Uh, if only, Matt, if only somehow Darth Vader could find a way to make Luke angry enough, uh, you know, if he had something to pick at, you know, perhaps a sister. Oh, you have a twin sister. You know, this this was straight out of Return of the Jedi uh, to to get him angry and to get him to puncture that barrier. Upstairs, Claire and Misty arrive. Uh, also, Colleen admits that she's got explosives. And Pete, Misty just has one question. How long does she have to stall them for? Back downstairs we go. Danny's fist is lit. Electra takes off her coat, revealing that traditional red. He swings at her, and it's now very clear that she is using him. Uh, indeed, she uses her size to twist and turn his fist right into the lock. And uh, he appears absorbed. And uh, outside the building, everything goes black. We even cut back to the precinct. Foggy and Karen lose power. Pete, I want to point out that in this scene, Foggy does not turn to Karen and say, we lost power. You know what? According to the case of the city of New York versus Con Edison, 1972, this in no way should happen. He doesn't yeah, have anything legal to say. But I want to point to out that Karen is clearly on the job at that point. So... Um, are there spaces in NYPD precinct houses the same way there is in the um, uh, in City Hall or the mayor's office for press? There are absolutely quarters for them, but she is on the job here. And then it's clear that they are not at the bulletin because she speaks with uh, uh, Ellison via phone. We never hear or see him to know that they have also lost power. So it supports the point I made before. She'd never, ever be allowed to talk to Matt Murdock on the job in this precinct house. Beside the point here, they've lost power. In the Midland Circle stairwell, our heroes are making their way down. Luke uses metal to bar the door. On the other side, we see the police have arrived. Misty delays the the, the cops. 
then Pete, I'll admit I was a little confused. We go from the parking garage, which I thought would have been somehow a little subterranean, but the exterior, you know, there was a window there that made it look a little bit raised. Okay, fine. Regardless, they end up in what appears to be the Midland Circle lobby. Um, Matt does his radar thing. He's uh, ready to take everyone down. There's one elevator that goes, you know, way, way down. Uh, Colleen says that she has all that C4. The others are shocked. And Jessica, Pete, the coolest head here, the wisest one, uh, says that it's obstruction of justice and domestic terrorism. Yeah, they face very real um, costs here. Uh, so the ante has been upped in addition to the supernatural threat that apparently looms uh, with whatever Danny has been made to uh, penetrate, to unseal. And, um, you know, Colleen with that easily grabbed C4. I mean, they couldn't have her pick it up at a bodega after all. Um, and they're looking to in some way end this. Um, Jessica, strangely, is the voice of reason here. Let's let's not uh, put this on me, but um, it was her architect that uh, developed this plan, and uh, clearly he knew what he was doing architecturally, uh, looking to end this. They've got just the hand people in this building, so this is a golden opportunity for our defenders and Colleen. Colleen also states that she's ready to kill the leaders and cut the heads off the snake. Uh, indeed, she says that the hand leaders are already dead. Matt says the building is otherwise empty, which to me, Pete, feels like, and this is, I'm not even bringing this in the theory turf, this feels like the show is way leaning towards we're going to bring this building down because we're making it super clear that the bad guys are already dead already and there's nobody else in the building. There's not a janitor doing the floor waxy thing. There's nothing. How do we know that the, the leaders of the hand are dead? I think by Colleen's logic, I mean, they're dead in that they, they have died once. It's like, you can't kill a vampire, Pete. It's dead already. I mean, I, I get that, but you've got to have them where you need them to be crushed, to be, you know, put down without the substance to fall back on. Um, and then cut to Danny in wherever he is in this obelisk, in this dome, what have you. And uh, even on, I think I'm on my fourth viewing of this scene at this point um, to, to have it pull back and, you know, you, you see the, the passageway, which, all right, is, is that a, you know, are those just ridges? Is that a skeleton? What's going on? Is this a dinosaur? Oh, wait, is it a dragon? I think I know what's going on. Boom. See you in the finale. Pete, let's take this end of the episode to tip our hats to everyone at patreon.com slash fantastic geek for helping be our support system. Pete, we would be like the building at Midland Circle near collapse, if not for our own defenders, <laughs> helping keep things up. Minus the coming with the C4 part. That's none of you lovelies out there. Yes. Uh, and everybody who contributes um, their contribution, like Danny's fist, unlocks a whole treasure trove. Uh, whether you choose to give at the Mary Kirk level, whether you're giving at the bare minimum, you're all going to gain access to 
exclusive podcast content uh, that may or may not include a dragon skeleton. And then you can determine what perk you'd like to come away with after that. But thank you again to everybody. Uh, you keep us going. Disclaimer, there are no uh, dragon skeletons. Everyone, turn to your left. It's time for the lineup. Pete, let's start with the new head of the hand, Electra. Yeah, fully embracing her identity as Electra Nachios in the previous episode. And, and now she's seemingly running things with the hand. Or are they manipulating her into thinking that uh, I think you could go either way? Um, but either way, to see her throwing down with Danny Rand... Um, again, to get in his head, a la the way uh, the the members of the leadership of the hand may have gotten in hers, I think is really something to behold. I'll give her credit where credit is due. She has done what others have not been able to do, which is to get an iron fist by this by this lock and activate the key and and you know key ma Keymaster meet the gatekeeper. So at least there's that in her defense. If we've got the keymaster and the gatekeeper there, does that make Bakudo the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man? Uh, it might be in that Bakudo carries a sword and the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, his smile can cut. <laughs> that was seamless, Pete. Tell us more about Bakuto as a bad guy. Um, you know, seemingly the mastermind of the uh, the gas leak uh, sword fire scenario, um, a, a page out of Batman there with some theatricality to uh, vanish from uh, three quarters of our defenders and, um, you know, fight another day in the finale. Ditto for Murakami, who part of me almost wishes we had more of in this episode, but uh, we saw him we saw him reacting to the death of Alexandra. We saw him chafing against Electra. We saw him fighting against the defenders. Can't ask for much more than that. And then a little old lady, Matt, who packs a punch. Yeah, I don't know at what point they realized they needed a superpower that this that this actress who's in her seventies could uh, could perform convincingly on camera and then you know something that could then be doubled from behind by a stunt person um i don't need an explanation as to why she has you know telekinesis force push type stuff versus uh bakudo and murakami who just fight real good uh to me it works to me it's pleasant to me it is uh, delightful and um pete she's been with us so long i hope she makes it through this next episode I found myself gleeful with each exhibition of her powers. It was one thing for her to, you know, kind of charge herself up a la uh, Danny Rand and to, you know, move a dumpster from, um, you know, blocking a door uh, all the way back in that fifth episode um, at the Royal Dragon restaurant. But here with, the, the palette of uh, cinder blocks with uh, beams and other things thrown at her uh, each time it was a joy. 
time to map out where this train might be heading with some theories. Let's begin, Matt. This is said to have been the first coup that the members of the uh, the hand here have attempted to weather without the substance. Um, okay, they've qualified that. But you mean to tell me that there's always been plenty of this stuff to go around and there's never been threats until now? Well, I read that just as maybe there have been lesser coups you know instead of a minor up behind coup. a minor coup yeah like a l- some light cooing <laughs> that's right so like for example instead of coming up behind alexandra knifing her letting her fall to the ground and then slicing her throat maybe it was like oh man i'm sick of that murakami i'm gonna throw a net over him and put him down in the big pit for you know 50 years or something like that or just you know and bakudo is gonna wake up on a desert island uh, and we'll just let him chill for a year or two, things of that sort, where they kind of, Pete, they were fighting, but they really didn't mean it. Electra, she meant it. Um, with the theories that we normally bring up, they tend to be things we haven't really gone over in the episode. I have to wonder, because they seem so overt and demonstrative, is there some kind of connection to the way that the detectives just let Karen Page roam around the uh, the precinct house as well as Colleen? Pete, what if in Luke Cage, Karen Page, formerly of Daredevil, formerly a legal uh, assistant, now a reporter headed to the Punisher series on our TVs this November. What if in Luke Cage, it turns out that due to the traumatic events of the Punisher, she has gone to police academy, and now she <laughs> is a detective too. So it'll be Cage and Cage. Um, I think there's a combo here, and you can work towards like provisional title, the lady defenders i don't love it as a title because you don't need lady in there to define it or whatever whatever but just that's like a working title where you can get you know daughters the dragon karen page you know just bring them all together lastly matt for me dragon dinosaur both neither what's up at the end of the episode with the skeleton Pete, they underwhelmed in Iron Fist in showing us the dragon of Kunlun. It was mentioned here back in episode 106. I'm wondering now if perhaps that was to reactivate the memory in our brains. Maybe we're going to get some some dragony effects just as the end of Iron Fist left us dragonless, left us Kunlunless, and kind of hanging out on a limb, uh, clearly meant to propel us to this miniseries. Maybe we're going to get payoff here. That is my guess. And Pete, speaking of payoff, here's my theory. Again, I know nothing about the finale except for the partial fate of one character and not one of the major characters or not one of the not one of not one of the named, you know, title series characters. So I know nothing. Here's my theory, Pete. My theory does Matt kill Black Sky? We have this Electra flashback at the top of the episode where she says that he will never be made to kill. Is there irony ahead? I know you can't answer that because you know the future and I do not. But, <laughs> but, but, so I don't know. Pete, what say you without spoiling a blessed thing? 
Uh, I'm not going to talk. Here's what our detectives picked up in this episode. Pete, we have an email from our pal Henry Perno who said, subject line, what people Danny Rand represents. Uh, he says, uh, in the podcast for Defenders episode 104, you brought up a group of people each Defender minus Iron Fist represented. I'd like to propose that Iron Fist is intentionally immature in the Iron Fist series and the most childish of the Defenders because his training in Kunlun, uh, by the way, Pete, he, uh, he has Kunlun spelled properly along with the apostrophes, big props there. Mm -hmm. Kunlun messed with his psychological development as a child. From his parents dying to being thrust into the harsh Iron Fist training, Danny's childhood was altered, uh, damaging his psychological development from that point onward, creating the man-child of sorts we see on the Netflix shows. Therefore, I'd like to propose that Danny Rand reflects people with developmental disorders. He struggles with basic social etiquette in his series and is generally less mature than the other three defenders in uh, both in uh, in both tone of his own show and as a character when contrasted with them in Royal Dragon. The execution across Iron Fist was flawed, but putting him with the other defenders and remembering what the other three represented made me consider that. And I wanted on the Fantastic Geek record. Anyway, keep on podcasting. Pete, what do you say that Danny might represent those with developmental disorders? I mean, it certainly sounds reasonable and it's uh, well thought out there. Only the writers can speak. Like I said, that adage in, in all of writing, if the story you're telling is the story you're telling, you're in deep stuff. Um, I would say that's a pretty fair assessment uh, of the character and uh, who he might be standing in for. I, I really like that as a theory. I like that as a possible metaphor. And I like that it, if indeed that is what Danny is representing or if Danny could represent that, um, you know, he, he still nonetheless is able to excel to these great heights of iron fist training of, you know, after, after the, uh, the getting to know you period of most of iron fist, you know, to, to ascend in the world of business and whatnot. So uh, there, there's a positive takeaway there. By the way, Pete Henry says in PS, when does the Runaways podcast launch? Pete, I know we know about Runaways. I know it's on our <laughs> radar. I don't know. I, I think we need to come up with a 25th hour and eighth day of the week. But uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> sh shall we just stay sticking a pin in it for now and uh, and seeing how schedules unfold? Well, I can tell you that we will definitely be attending the Runaways presentation at New York Comic Con. Um, so I will give that much away at this point. Pete, do you have any detective messages there? I have a couple here in the form of iTunes reviews. The first comes to the Defenders podcast by Fantastic Geek uh, feed on iTunes. And uh, that's by Fan of S.H.I.E.L.D. who will instantly be entered here for our drawing uh, at the end of the next episode for a Funko Pop Daredevil Masked Vigilante uh, vinyl figure. And it's headlined, A Fantastic Look at Marvel's Defenders, Five Stars. These guys know their stuff. 
And they have a fantastic, spelled with the PH there, balance of praise and criticism here and on other TV shows in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They clearly put the right amount of time and research into these. Keep up the good work. Certainly kind words there, always appreciated, and uh, great to hear another review there. The next review, Matt, was left to the Pop Culture Podcast by Fantastic Geek, which also simulcasts our Defenders podcast by Fantastic Geek. This was left by Legion O Doom, and the headline reads, Hosts who are passionate about their work, four stars. And it reads, Peter and Matt care about the topics they cover, and it's obvious in their podcast, Fantastic Geek is one of only two shows I listen to about the MCU, and I look forward to it. Well, that is uh, that is high praise indeed. Particularly if uh, if it's us and somebody else, we, you know, it's one thing if you're listening to eighteen thousand MCU podcasts, but for us to be uh, to be the cream of the crop there is certainly uh, certainly flattering. Absolutely. So, if we have not read your review. To this point, we haven't received it. Uh, make sure you get yours in before uh, we go to air on uh, Tuesday, September twelfth. Indeed, TikTok, TikTok, as our uh, as our vaunted long in development defenders experience is uh, is now getting close to the end. Pete, if people want to be in touch with you personally, though, how can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 9,451 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast in a whole variety of ways. We are Fantastic Geek. That is fantastic with the P and the H. FantasticGeek.com, FantasticGeek at gmail.com, FantasticGeek on Twitter and Instagram as well. Certainly hope you reach out, especially if you're headed to New York Comic Con. Always love meeting up with people. But wait, Pete, is there more? There is Facebook.com forward slash Fantastic Geek. Uh, with the PH, all one word, your destination for Defenders, for Inhumans, for Star Trek Discovery, for New York Comic Con, for everything that we do. Pete, we will be back next Tuesday the 12th to podcast episode One Way to Defenders. And uh, we will be back on Friday, September 15th to wrap up Defenders once and for all. The voyage continuing from there, as you said, uh, Starship Discovery not too far away, Humans not too far away, New York Comic Con not too far away, and uh, it certainly is a bountiful time of year to be podcasting pop culture. So happy to be doing it with you all. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. It's been a long week. 